0: Today, we're joined by Mark Tyson. He's an attorney that has experience working for a big law firm, then he went out on his own. Today, as an attorney with his own practice, he helps founders and small business owners get started and run their businesses. We've got listener questions, so stay tuned and we're excited to jump into it. Welcome to the practical podcast for
1: technical people who want to start their own company. From founding to building your business, we're here to help. I'm Sean Hemel. And I'm Harris Kenny. This is the Hello Blink Show. Mark, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Everything's good here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so we've got a couple of questions. I know that we chatted about some things. I've got a couple of questions that I've been thinking about. And we posted this on social, and I got some good feedback with people who are asking general questions as well as some specific stuff for you as a lawyer. What what law advice um, might you have for them? And a lot of times, these are people starting their own businesses, small businesses, or in larger practices, but we focus mostly on individuals, smaller businesses, LLCs, that kind of thing. So, to start off here, something that I've definitely run into and I know that we chatted about this over email is this idea of legal zoom, clerky, all these sites where you can go get essentially legal advice, but you know, they'll they'll say like don't use this as official legal advice when do you recommend actually going to hire a lawyer versus just saying, you know what, I'm going to look something up on LegalZoom?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a question I get a lot um, from folks, especially who are um, cash strapped uh, at the start, whether it's solopreneurs or, um, you know, startups who are chasing growth um, and who are even eyeing investment. They may look at these solutions and think, This is a great way to kind of get the bones in place without uh, blowing through whatever cash, you know, mom and dad fronted us um, to get up and running. Um, And and to be perfectly candid, some of these things uh, really do work um, for for entrepreneurs. And so I don't I don't give a, a categorical don't do it when people come to me. What I typically do say, though, is, you know, if you've got me on the phone, you probably got questions for me in addition to why should I work with you versus, you know, using LegalZoom or Clerky or or one of these programs. Um, And I think that really gets at the root of the issue is a lot of folks have questions that are unique to their situation that they want to have answered. And the reality is you're not going to get answers from these programs. You're going to get a, um, a set of templates that are that are spit out. And there's some customization involved. I mean, you're going to get prompted to, you know, enter the number of people who are going to be equity holders in the business, you know, state of, of incorporation or formation if you're an LLC and other things like that. But uh, the things that, that may keep you awake at night, from whether it's from a liability perspective, you know, protecting IP, things like that, uh, you're not going to find peace of mind. Uh, from these programs. And, and if you do find peace of mind, it will likely be temporary and it may be illusory. And so usually what I tell people is if you're looking for somebody to really f- function like a legal consultant, that's when you should hire a lawyer. And there are ways to be you know, cost sensitive to these things too. I mean, one of the things I do is, is use flat fees, especially for formation. I think it's kind of absurd when people just charge by the hour because um, it's really easy for lawyers to scope out formation projects, at least lawyers who do it all the time um and so i mean to to put a bow on this i really do think it's it's you know what are you looking for um are you just looking for you know templates to to uh, to get you up and running and if that's the case fine use one of these programs but if you're looking for someone to to guide you down that path you know i think that's when it's time to to find a lawyer hey
0: mark so you full disclosure here you've helped me with some projects before uh, so I just want to get that out of the way, but I just want to kind of tie what you were just saying. And can you just tell folks a little bit more about your practice and how your practice works, and and how you're getting those types of inbound uh, inquiries, and and how you how you work with clients, and and just sort of the way your business runs.
2: Yeah. So so I would say that the two big innovations um, that that I've um, you know brought to bear with with my practice, uh, the first which you alluded to in your question is is inbound marketing. Um, I think a lot of lawyers, uh, especially traditionally, have um, have gotten clients through referrals. So they've they've built up their practice by word of mouth. The problem with that, you know, it, in my view, is it doesn't really scale. And so one of the things that that I looked at when I started my own practice was how can I uh, how can I find clients in a way um, that that scales, and, and how can I do things that that are efficient that that allow me to to reach more people um, with with less effort. And so inbound marketing, you know, for, for probably most of the listeners of your show, this seems like a no brainer. Uh, but common sense is not so common, especially for lawyers, uh, and lawyers don't really get this right. And and um, and so anyway, without without going into too much detail on that, I actually get a lot of business from inbound, um, and it's evergreen content. I'm out there blogging, creating content, and it's not you know gotcha content of you know, how to register a trademark. Here are the first two steps. And then I'm, you know, for three, four and five, call me and I'll charge you an arm and a leg to, you know, to, to get things up and running. Um, it really is about, okay, these are things that, you know, I can give information away, um, especially for, for projects that, frankly, I don't really think I need to handle and other people can do on their own. But then identify pain points and say, you know, if, if you run into this issue, this is when it makes sense to call a lawyer. And I think people really appreciate that. And again, your listeners probably are listening to this and thinking, yeah, what an epiphany. You know, everyone knows that. Uh, but for lawyers, it's, it's really not been the case um, primarily. So that's, that's innovation number one. And then innovation number two, which is arguably not that innovative in the legal space you know, at this time, but um, is, is really using flat fees um, and, uh, and trying to avoid you know, the dreaded billable hour uh, where you, you know, sign up a client and essentially they write you a blank check and, and you do the work and, um, and send them a bill at some point. And usually
1: they're upset because you know, they didn't have any, any idea of what it was going to cost. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so one of the things, you know, you're talking about these billable hours, and it's, it can be a lot of money to have a lawyer you know, on retainer or, or as part of your staff. So at what point do you see it necessary for a company? At what growth level do you see it necessary for a company to hire a lawyer, um, have one on retainer, or even put together a legal team? Like, what if it's a really small company and they just don't have the funding? Because I think a lot of our listeners are, you know, if they're not part of a company already or they're looking to jump out and do their own thing, they're going to be bootstrapped.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's, I mean, it, it, it's tricky to to, to give a, a universally applicable answer. But, you know, what I would say is, um, what I would say is that, the earlier you can find someone who you can call in a pinch, the better. Um, and ideally, you'd find a lawyer who you could connect with and say, hey, you know, maybe I'm going to form my LLC on my own. Uh, maybe I don't need your help. But I know I'm going to have issues, whether it's with with contracts down the road, with fundraising, with protecting IP. Uh, I know I'm going to need help. And, um, and the earlier you can do that, connect with somebody, I would say the better. Because just as a practical matter, if somebody calls me up and says, Hey, I need this thing by Friday, and it's Wednesday. If I don't have a relationship with them, I may want to help them. I may like them, uh, but but you know, practical realities may dictate me not being able to take them on. So what I would say is is start early and and find somebody you like and you trust, uh, and you don't necessarily have to pay them a bunch of money to do do the initial things, especially if you're bootstrapped. Um, but but get involved with somebody. And uh, I think that can head off problems down the road. You know, one of the things I see, especially for startups, um, especially for growth startups, they have this mindset of, you know, we're, we're disrupting whatever industry or whatever field we're in. The problem is they, they oftentimes see legal as this kind of impediment um, of, for their disruption project. And so they think, well, we can just kind of disrupt le- you know, the, the legal process uh, as, part of, as part of this project we're doing. Uh, And that's all well and good until you, um, you know, you you lose intellectual property, for example, um, that say an employee is creating um, that who's working for you. And then all of a sudden you're in this bind where, you know, maybe you're trying to to raise funds from investors and they're doing due diligence. And uh, and they say, okay, well, where are your your invention assignment agreements for your employees? And you say, what? I don't I don't even know what those are. Um, and, And so I guess I would just say, even if you're not planning to spend thousands of dollars at least have a consultation um, at least you know find somebody who will talk to you for an hour and just even issue spot for you and say these are the things to keep an eye out for when you encounter this issue that's when you should come talk to me and and lawyers like me will do that for clients you know I, I don't need to bill you thousands of dollars to feel like you're a worthwhile client So I, I would say the earlier the better but then just be really clear with the lawyer um, what you, what you're, what you want out of, out of kind of the initial contact and what you're prepared to pay.
0: It reminds me of like the Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns sort of thing, right? Where it's like, look, at least just kind of get someone to look at this with you to make sure that you're seeing most of the problem. And then if you want to take a risk on it, that's fine, but just do it knowingly rather than blindly. It sounds like what you're saying.
2: Exactly. The, how I describe it is, um, it's helpful that to have somebody um, set the parameters of your of your universe. and I think that really drives it at your comparison with the Rumsfeld quote. In fact, I, I use the Rumsfeld quote too, but um, visually, I think it could be helpful to just imagine you know drawing a big circle around um, all the issues that you may encounter. And I, th- I think that's really helpful. you know circling back to an earlier comment I made about peace of mind. It just helps people to feel like, okay, I now have a grasp of, of you know some of the things I need to look out for.
1: Yeah. And I find that a lot of times lawyers have been around the block a few times and you're like, oh, I've seen this issue pop up. And you kind of want somebody who's seen that before give you that advice. So I'm going to ask a question that I had. And that is, you talked about protecting your intellectual property. So getting a trademark or a patent can be a very mm, thorough and long process and expensive process. Are there some things you can do to secure intellectual property? that might be on the cheaper or faster side um instead of filing for a trademark or a patent because i looked at at trademarking some things and and sometimes it's like is it even worth it to go through that process if you know that you know it, it it you would end up having to fight you know are you willing to pay a lawyer to fight for that trademark you see what i'm saying like is it worthwhile for a very small like two person company
2: yeah it's um it's an issue I encounter a lot. And I think the, the way you frame the issue is right. Um, and I think you have to think about, are you prepared to to defend your intellectual property once you've secured it? Um, to, to take a step back, though, um, one thing I like to, to point out, uh, a distinction between trademarks and copyrights on the one hand, um, and then patents on the other, is that trademarks and copyrights Um, Actually, the the right, the exclusive right to uh, to that IP actually arises as as a result of use and not registration. And so with a trademark, you know, if you're using your business name or your logo uh, in commerce, you actually have the exclusive right to that. You don't have to register it to get those rights, which is different from a patent um, where you actually have to go and file and, and secure your rights that way. And so, you know, one of the things you can do if you're cost conscious or, you know, if you have the money to to get the, say, trademark registration, uh, but you know you're not prepared to defend it if somebody is, is trying to challenge it, is don't register. You know, put the little TM next to your name, say, uh, on your website. Um, and what that TM signifies, just for what, it, what it's worth, is um, you know, you're claiming the, the right to the trademark, but you're not claiming uh, to have a registered trademark. If you have the little R with the circle around it, that's, that's when you have a registered mark. Um, but that can act as, as a deterrent for, for kind of the casual um, searcher who, who may come across your website. Maybe they're doing their own trademark search. Uh, they find your website. They see the little TM. They see somebody else is using it in the same space. Um, and that can be a deterrent. And again, if you're not planning to actually defend it, and this applies to patents, too, by the way, if, if you're not planning to, to, to defend your patent, even if you were able to get it, um, whether it's because of the money or the time or, or whatever it is, uh, really think hard about whether it's worth doing it. There are other ways to, to protect IP. I mean, contracts you know, are a great example. Um, whether it's an NDA that, that um, you know, if you're trying to partner with somebody, getting them to agree to, to not disclose or use uh, any of your confidential information. There are plenty of other workarounds, I think, for, for the cost conscious and, and for those kind of early stage um, companies that aren't ready to, to pump a bunch of money into, into going in, you know, protecting their IP portfolio. Having said that, There are situations where I do think it's beneficial to seek registration. Let's use trademarks as an example. Um, If you're trying to go out and raise um, funds, if you're a startup, say, um, you know, that's part of the the value of your company. And so it can be a signal to investors, um, even just having a pending application. The same is true, actually, of patents. Um you know, but you're sending a signal to your investors if we're taking this seriously, we're thinking about things the right way, and we're trying to build up value in this company that we're asking you to, you know, potentially invest hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And this ties really neatly into a question that we had gotten on Twitter from Michael, Microphonon. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. And by the way, or my mi- or was it microphoton? I think it's an phonon. But by the way, Mark's on Twitter, at Mark W. Tyson. You can follow him there for hot takes. Uh, And of course, we've got the show on Twitter as well, at Hello Blink Show. And so we got a question in from Twitter, and he's asking specifically about the patent process. There's two things I want to pull apart here. So um, they ask, the patent process is lengthy and expensive. Does protecting IP this way make sense for a tech startup in today's world where innovation happens with unprecedented speed? And I think a lot of the comments earlier were talking about the cost of defense, but the other cost is just associated with the process itself and how much time it takes and how that could potentially slow people down. Is that something that you've seen with clients in your practice where there's concern about the patent process beyond defense, just the amount of time and resources it takes? Absolutely.
2: And I, I think, you know, in this space, the product and the market are really going to drive whether it makes sense to to pursue a, a patent filing you know, if it's a, let's say pharmaceuticals, you know, if it's, a, it's something that requires a lot of time and a lot of capital uh, to bring your product to market, getting a patent is going to probably be, you know, a, a necessary step you have to take. Um, if you're building an app, um, I mean, putting aside the question of whether it's patentable anyway, but if you're building some, you know, consumer product that, uh, you know, is somebody else could, um, could copy easily or, or create some, something that's similar to it, you know, by the time you actually get to the point where uh, you you may have the the patent protection, you've spent you know tens of thousands of dollars on on legal fees. You're not even prepared to defend it. Uh, there's really no need to have it. I think you know your 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 um, listeners' question, I think, is really uh, you know you know when you when you consider it in that context, I think it it sheds some light on um, on the importance of founders stopping and, and taking some time to think. You know, why are we pursuing this? Is it a vanity project? Is it because somebody told us that it was the right thing to do? Is it because we met a lawyer at some, you know, startup event who said, "Oh, you've got to talk to to my patent guy, you know, that's going to to solve all your problems and, you know, investors are going to come Flocking to you and, and pump millions of dollars into your company, you know, these are all questions that you should be asking. Now, having said that, there can be some uh, there can be some value to uh, pursuing this type of thing or, or you know trademark registration, like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, as a signal of, of the, the earnestness of your intent. Um, to investors, to bankers, to other people who may be wanting to fund you, so it's it's a really situation specific thing. But um, I think the important thing to remember about that is is don't do it just because the herd is doing it. Uh, really stop and take some time and, and think about what your unique situation is.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that exactly highlights kind of where there was ultimately tension here. They they followed up later outside of the question, just saying you know that there was a. It sounds like a disagreement between the founding partners one who'd said that they needed a patent before investors would talk to them. And they were working with a law firm doing $700 an hour, billable hours, well into the five figures. And they wanted to keep charging more as the process was going on, but that the company was bootstrapped. This basically wiped out their capital and then the co-founder ultimately left the business. And so it sounds like the difference between those partner, those founders, about whether they wanted to bootstrap and how they would bootstrap and how legal would be handled one way versus whether they wanted to get investment. And then in that case, a legal strategy is very different. It, it seems like that that's kind of the root of uh, what happened here and how it affected that business ultimately. It looks like they're still running and the product actually looks really interesting. So I think they're they are doing fine, but I think it was that difference in paths it, that really kind of highlighted where the problem was. Yeah. Yeah, pick your founders carefully too. So
1: getting getting to that question, going back to some of the ones we were discussing earlier... The One of the questions that comes up all the time, or excuse me, more of a, eh, not so much of a question, but a debate that I have with some of my friends is, do you go LLC or do you go corporation? What are your thoughts on that? What necessitates one versus the other?
2: Totally situation dependent. I would say that if you're a solopreneur um, or small, closely held company that's going to be bootstrapped, uh, by and large, an LLC is going to be your your best bet. Uh, one of the big advantages of having an LLC versus a corporation is is uh, ease of operation. Um, so with a corporation is, I think probably most most listeners or or at least have have some passing familiarity with. Um, is that, you know, you have to have a board of directors and a slate of officers and you have to have meetings and all these things um, that if, if you're just a one man or one woman show or if it's just a couple of you in your early stages, it's excessive. It's a waste of time. Um, and if you don't follow these formalities, you can get tripped up and, and put your, your corporate liability shield at risk. Um, and so for those, you know, solopreneurs and in, in smaller companies, I typically advise them to, to form LLCs. LLCs are nice because uh, you don't have to observe um, all the same formalities. And a lot of um, state statutes, LLC statutes have provisions written into that say, uh, even if you have formalities, and you don't observe them. Uh, that won't be a basis for holding the individual members of the LLC personally liable for you know debts of the LLC, and so uh, it can be just a nice way. It's it's kind of like training wheels um, for a lot of people too. But you still get all of the liability protection that you would have in a corporation uh, with an LLC. So so when does it make sense though to incorporate um, for a company that plans to to raise uh, venture capital? Um, you need to either form as a C-Corp, whether it's Delaware or in a different state, and that's something I'm I'm happy to talk about too. Uh, But you should plan to either form a a C-Corporation at the start or have plans to convert from your LLC, if you start with that, uh, to a C corporation at some point. Um, the idea being that uh, investors expect to invest in, in C corporations for a handful of reasons that may or may not be of interest to, to folks. But uh, the bottom line is they're going to expect to, to, to invest in that type of an entity. Uh, and so it makes sense just to, to not complicate things and not try to Get too cute um, surrounding that. I will say that if there are lawyers listening, there is some um, there is some theoretical debate in the community about you know uh, the potentially using LLCs as as uh, a form of entity that that um, angel investors or venture capitalists will invest in. But I would say by and large the practice is is still to to have a C corporation and and that's what
1: investors expect to see. Good to know. And so some of the other things that I've heard about LLCs. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but an LLC, an LLC can own stock or interest in another company, right? Where you cannot do that with a C or an S-corp? Uh, you, you can with a C-corp. Um, S-corp, okay. yeah, s corps
2: I, I always stop and, and try to take stock of, uh, no pun intended, uh, of... Um, uh, of uh, of ownership structures when it comes to an S-corp, just because there are... So an S-corp is, is a tax status, not a type of entity. Um, there's one corporation, and then the C-corporation refers to a tax treatment, type of tax treatment, and the S-corporation also refers to a type of, of tax treatment. But there are um, fairly strict limitations on... Um, on uh, classes of stock for S-corporations, um, the identity of the shareholders, the number of shareholders and things like that. And so uh, when it comes to structuring, anytime an S-corp is involved, I, I immediately, you know, my spidey sense starts tingling. So I'm reluctant to, to, um, to kind of speak too generally about that. But, um, but to, I mean, to answer your question more directly, um, yeah, a, a corporation could could own shares in another entity as well. Um, one of the other things I should mention about LLCs too is um, one of the things that that people like is um, flexible tax structure. Um, so if you're an LLC, you can actually elect to be taxed as a corporation. Um, whereas if you're a corporation, you can't elect to be taxed the way that an LLC would be, uh, which which is often the way that that partnerships are taxed. If if you're a multi-member LLC um, or if you're a single-member LLC, uh, the default tax status is is disregarded entity, which is how sole proprietorships are taxed. Got
1: it. And that's, that's the pass-through nature exactly, of it? Exactly. Exactly. So the other thing that, that I've seen is that so some states, like Colorado, will recognize a single-member LLC, but the IRS doesn't recognize a single-member LLC. Excuse me. The IRS does not recognize a single-member LLC. Is that correct? That's that's exactly correct. And so LLCs are um, are creatures of state law. And
2: so when you form a single member LLC, whether it's in my home state of Washington here or Colorado or any other state that that has an LLC statute, you form your LLC and you have that regardless of, of how the IRS views you. But if you don't make any kind of um, tax election after you formed your single member LLC, your default tax treatment will be that of a disregarded entity in the eyes of the IRS. So the IRS will look at you and will say, uh, we view you essentially as a sole proprietorship. And so it's all passed through. All the uh, profits and losses are are going to be uh, reported on your personal tax return. Um, But just to be clear, that doesn't mean that you lose your liability protection. Uh, Because, again, it's a it's a it's your protections lie at the state state level uh, and the IRS is is completely separate and apart from that. They're just concerned about
1: taxes. So let's say you build something and it and it, you know, somebody buys it in another state and it hurts them and they're coming to sue you. Right. I hope that never happens to somebody. But let's say that that does. And. An LLC? Are you saying an LLC protects you in the same way that a sole proprietorship would protect you from a legal perspective?
2: Um, no. So a sole proprietorship doesn't create any kind of liability shield for you um, the way that an LLC would. Um, really, the, the the point is that um, the the compare the point of comparison between the single member LLC and the sole proprietorship is solely based on on tax treatment. Um, really, want to encourage all the listeners out there if you're at all concerned about liability. Uh, form some type of entity, whether it's an LLC or a corporation, uh, don't just rely on the sole proprietorship. I know it's easy. I know it seems less scary, uh, but in reality, it can c- cause a lot of problems for you down the road if you don't form up. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, if there was a lawsuit, um, you know, and, and God forbid there ever is, but let's say you're sued and if you're, you're an LLC, Um, You you do have that liability shield that um, that prevents uh, prevents the person who's suing you from actually going after your personal assets. It's essentially limited to to the assets of of the LLC.
0: And this is one of those situations where you say, hey, this is not legal advice. This is where it gets kind of (laughs) gray. You should probably talk to an attorney even for a little bit. Right. Going back to the earlier Defining your universe, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, the, the more you spin out these scenarios, I think that um, in a lot of ways, it, it's like, uh, you know, total employment for lawyers, you know, the more you talk about this thing, it's like, <laughs> um, you, you know, if you can scare enough people with uh, with just kind of spinning out these scenarios, but I mean, there's there's some truth to it, too. Uh, you know, I, I think the value of having a good lawyer uh, to, to talk to is is to spin out all these contingencies, right? And say, well, what happens if, if you know, X scenario occurs? What happens if Y scenario occurs? What's the response? What's my exposure? You know, all these things are, are really the value of, of having a good lawyer, especially a good business lawyer is, is really mitigating risk and planning for risk. And I, what I would encourage listeners to do is to, to shift your perspective if it Um, if, if, if it had previously been, you know, to see lawyers is essentially, you know, document mills, uh, you know, can you send me the template you have for, you know, X, uh, X type of contract, try to move away from that. Um, you're not going to get the same value out of working with your lawyer if that's the way you see things. Um, really, the value you're going to find is, OK, let's do some planning. Let's talk through these scenarios. You know, what's my what am I trying to do with my business? Uh, you know, where are the where are the threats coming from? Let, let's run through all these scenarios.
0: Yeah, that's been my experience, I think, on the legal side and the accounting side as well, is that you're you're moving from you want to try to shift from tactical you know, and very like task oriented conversations with these types of advisors and instead try to find advisors who can be more strategic, who you can have very personal conversations with about your goals for the business, why you're doing this, personal goals, what keeps you up at night, what, what, you know, your motivations, because I think that being an entrepreneur can be very lonely, um, particularly if it's a one person operation. And so these are avenues, I think, to get some camaraderie and to get someone to help you navigate the process and, and not just sort of, like you said, Hey, here's a template or here's just, sort and you know, or Hey, what's the cheapest way that I can possibly get an NDA? Uh, you know, I I think that's not the best way to do it, especially when, you know, you, if you don't have other people to lean on it, it can be a good way to get counsel and perspective from people.
2: Yeah. And, and just as a plug for finding a good accountant, too, um, you know, a personal story that, that, that I want to share um, is I waited too long to, to go and find a good CPA to help me out. And, you know, it's not like there were dire consequences to doing that. But, you know, there were some headaches I had to sort through because I, you know, thought, OK, I have a, a simple tax structure. Uh, it's just a single man show uh what's what's the big deal right there's turbo tax it exists and so you know it was kind of a humbling experience to to realize that you know the advice that i've been giving to people for so long i wasn't applying to my own life and my own business uh, in a different setting so i think that comparison is apt
1: yeah i think i think uh we're going to probably have to get an accountant on here as a separate interview as well i think that'd be fascinating i've i've already had somebody ask me like uh yeah this is awesome get a lawyer and get an accountant <laughs> you know get, talk to both
0: because we're a fun podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next week we'll have actuarial uh, experts from insurance <laughs> companies talking about how likely it is that you'll die. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. So anyway,
1: uh, I see a lot of businesses getting listed. You mentioned this earlier, Do they get listed as Delaware as their home state. Uh, why does that happen? There's an institutional bias, um,
2: uh, especially among venture capitalists for startups to be incorporated in Delaware. Um, Delaware has a, uh, a fairly robust and sophisticated body of corporate law that's been developed um, uh, by case law over hundreds of years. Uh, and it's well known. It's kind of the flagship state as far as, you know, other states crafting their, their corporate statutes and, um, you know, seeking guidance and, and input from, from previous court decisions. So, you know there are good reasons why why companies go to Delaware, um, and and also by the way there are some there are some favorable um, you know there's favorable treatment uh, uh, in the laws for, for corporations there. So so there are good reasons for companies to flock there, um, but I think it it it's been uh, overstated the importance of going there, especially for you know the solopreneur. The small business that's closely held, that's you know based in Colorado or Washington or you know somewhere west of the Rockies, uh, maybe you had a friend who said, "Hey, go to Delaware. It's a great place. Uh, you know the 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 corporate statutes are really friendly there." But in reality, you're never going to use those things. What benefit is it to you to to uh, to form there if those things are never going to come up? If there's never going to be a you know derivative shareholder action that you have to deal with? Um, And and in reality, you're actually going to take on quite a bit more um, administrative uh, hassle. You're going to take on more expense. Um, You know, if you, let's say, form an LLC and you're based in Denver and you decide to go to to Delaware, you're going to pay filing fees to form your LLC there. You're going to have to pay to get a registered agent in the state because you're not based there. Uh, You may have franchise tax obligations. um, And these things are going to be annual. Some of these things are going to be annual. But in the meantime, you also have to register your business in Colorado. You have to qualify in Colorado, which will probably be another couple hundred dollars. It would be in Washington. Um, And, you know, you're going to have tax obligations there, too. So, I mean, I guess ask yourself the question, why are you doing this? And if the answer is, well, because, you know, I read some article on, uh, you know, business.com or whatever, uh, that, that says that's where, you know, serious companies go to incorporate. That may not be a good reason. Now, on the other hand, uh, if you're a startup that plans to go to Sand Hill Road and and drum up, you know, interest in funds, uh, being a Delaware C Corp may be a really good idea. Um, VC investors tend to expect to see that. Uh, and so if you, uh, you know, if you decide that you're going to incorporate in New Mexico or somewhere else like that, they may ask questions and say, well, you know, why did you do that? Um Even so, investors are going to care much more about your business than they're going to care about where you're incorporated. The reality is it's pretty easy to move around. Um, A lot of states have statutes that allow you to uh, re-domesticate. So, for instance, if you formed a a Washington C corporation, it's actually pretty easy to to just re-domesticate it in Delaware. So... Don't think too hard about this. Um, focus on your business. Focus on building it out. Focus on actually finding people who want to invest in what you're building. Um, and then, you know, if your investors say, hey, we really want you to be in Delaware. Great. You know, pay a lawyer a thousand bucks and redomesticate the thing at that point.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't realize it was mostly just based on because everybody else is doing it kind of logic. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm um, I'm tempted to make a, a political reference here, but I'm going to refrain. <laughs> So when it comes to when, it, so a lot of a lot of our listeners are you know like I said, either looking to go the solopreneur route, have LLCs, whatnot. At what point do you decide to hire employees versus use independent contractors as help? Where does that because there's like a legal thing that happens when somebody starts working for you too much, they become an employee. So where is that barrier? Where should people be? Where should people be concerned?
2: Yeah, um, this is actually a really fraught area, and and I'm kind of surprised, frankly, that there's um, that it's not more publicized. And and really, I blame Uber for this. Um, you know, Uber has this really high profile. Um, I think they've in many ways been at the fore of of the gig economy, of, of leading that movement. And you know, however you feel about the gig economy, um, you know, the structural elements of it. Um, it's certainly a thing. And, and Uber has been heavily involved in that. But the reality, too, is that and, and just for some background, I, I assume a lot of people are, are familiar with this. But Uber's basic model is, you know, our drivers are contractors, not employees. And that allows them to um, to make lots of money because they don't have to pay employment taxes and, you know, provide benefits and all these things. Um but uh, in any event, Uber pays millions of dollars every year lobbying state and uh, federal legisl- legislative bodies. Um, they also get sued all the time. Um, and they have, uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, government agencies coming after them all the time, too. Uh, the thing is, though, they have the resources to do that. If you have, you know, a one or two or three person LLC, uh, you know, with limited funds, really think hard about how you're classifying your workers. Um the, the divide between contractors and employees is not what you call them. It's how you treat them. And so if you say, OK, we want to use contractors because we want to save some money on employment taxes and we just want we don't want to have to deal with payroll um, and, and a handful of other things. Um, and, and so you just say, OK, these workers are contractors, not employees. Uh, that's not going to cut it. Uh, the IRS and, and other state agencies that are going to look at this issue are going to say, OK, how are you treating these workers? Uh, and by the way, there are different tests for everybody that, that looks at this. The IRS has this, this test notice control, um, which what does that mean? Uh, and they have like, you know, 18 different sub factors that you have to look at. Uh, and then I think of the state of Washington, there are at least two or three government agencies that have their own tests. Um, all of them pursue people pretty aggressively because they want employment taxes. Uh, they want to protect workers and do all these things. Uh, But if you misclassify workers, you know, you could be putting your business on the line, frankly, because if you get hit with back taxes, um, fines, penalties, you know, for misclassification, um, that's not going to be, you know, spread out over, you're not going to get an installment plan from the government. They're going to say, pay all this now. And there may be damages multipliers. And so if you have payroll to make, um, you know, you might have to, Shutter. I mean, it might cripple your business. So, typically, what I tell people is, you really need to think through this carefully, and and it can be quite beneficial to talk through a lawyer if you're thinking about, um, you know, classifying workers as contractors, uh, because you put you you could be creating an ex- existential crisis for your business if you if you make a mistake here.
0: It's so interesting you bring up Uber. It reminds me of the earlier comment about sort of disrupting legal. I mean, the whole business is built on regulatory arbitrage where they're like, oh, we're not a transportation company, we make an app. And it's like, well, well, you've been calling yourself ride sharing for the last eight years. What are you, <laughs> what are you sharing, you know? Right? And they're like, oh, well, those, we have our drivers. And then you go from from an employment perspective, you're like, oh no, those are, those are suppliers, those are contractors and things like that. Um, you know, I think that, and like you said, that the history of that company has been fraught with lots of concerns and issues. And, you know, ultimately, if, if you want to start something and you're getting ready to bring someone on, that's a really big responsibility. If you are deciding that this is the place where you want to start cutting corners, you need to figure out how to make more money, raise prices, introduce a better product. If you if you really want to nickel and dime someone who's going to be taking a huge chance working for you. I mean, if you're their first employee, there's a very high risk situation that they're going to be in deciding to work with you and for you and trust you, uh, just try to figure out how to get them on board the right way, or do something that will be a pure contractor, finding someone through, you know, an Upwork or an agency or on Craigslist or something like that, where it's very obviously a a clear contractual relationship where there's clear terms. And then when it ends, it ends, and there's no hard feelings. But to try to like push it, I think, is to really kind of get yourself off on the wrong foot. Um, You know, and I think that, yeah, I just think that's I think that's you're opening up a whole new world for your business. And I think when people are trusting you entering those doors, you really want to get off on the right foot. And If you can't figure out the way to make the numbers work now, how are you going to make it work when you have 10 employees? How are you going to make it work when you have 100 employees?
2: Well, ask yourself about what kind of culture you want to have at your company, too. I mean, that's that's a consideration I think people really need to give some thought to. The smaller you are, in, in some ways, the more important your culture is going to be, especially at the start. Um, you know, while you struggle to make it, and if you're using contractors and you're, you know, abiding by these restrictions on on how you can treat contractors, there's going to need to be a pretty long leash that you're giving these folks. Um, and at the same time, you're not going to be giving them much else as far as benefits and other things like that. Um, and and even if you want to, you should not be uh, because you're gonna you're gonna risk um, the the misclassification issue that I alluded to. Uh, And so if you plan on having a culture that is tight knit, um, where you have a lot of um, control over your employees, and and I don't necessarily mean that in some draconian sense, uh, but, you know, the ability to supervise what they're doing, quality control, those things, um, you need employees. I mean, you need people that you can give um, that, that you can give a lot of direction to. Uh, and if you have contractors, you're just not going to be able to do that in a way that that's going to to also protect you from um, from the misclassification issue.
0: It reminds me of that, you know, when people say, well, how do you think of the workplace is is where your your colleagues is, is work like a family, you know, and I think sometimes people say, yeah, it works like a family. I'm not like mean to my employees, but it's like, well, if, if this were like a family and, and you had one of your children were hungry, like, would you give them less food? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they're like, well, I'm still hungry. And you'd be like, sorry, you know, I'm hungry actually. So you can eat later. You know, work is not a family. Your business is not a family. These are people who you're compensating for work and you you can't take advantage of that. I, I just, I've seen it go sour and spoil so many times over and over and over and over again. And uh, it's it's not a family. You're employing people, you're compensating them. Decide how you want to compensate them and then take the trade-offs that come with that, whether it's contracting and then you have less control and all the other things, or if it's employment, then you have to pay more benefits and you're more locked in. Either way, there's pros and cons, but I, I hate to see, sorry, this is like something that gets me really fired up. I hate to see people take shortcuts on this kind of thing. It really pisses me off. I think one of the things that a lot of people neglect
1: doing is coming up with some kind of mission statement for their company. And the you know I always see it as three big things in your mission statements. And you know I, I want to point out that a slogan is not a mission statement. A mission statement should include what benefit, um, what obligations do you have for uh, your customers? You know that's usually where people stop thinking. But also your shareholders and your employees. What what are you trying to provide? as a value in your community to those three specific groups of people. And you're right. You you should be doing something and thinking about your employees as part of your family to help with this. Um, So one thing I wanted to ask, Mark, um, I know you mentioned, Mark, that there are a bunch of stipulations that defines a contractor versus a uh, employee. There's probably a whole ton. Are there a few that listeners can clue in on? So like one that I heard is like, is this the only contract they're working on? Or is it a number of hours or amount you're paying them? Something that would say, oh, you know what? I'm, you know, If somebody says like, oh, I have this contractor, but they're doing 30 hours of work for me a week, and it's the, their only contract, does that become a potential problem? They start looking more like an employee.
2: Yeah, so one of the classic examples is how do you pay them? And so if you're paying them uh, based on the hour, right, Uh, that's how you typically pay employees. And so that's going to be a red flag versus, you know, let's say say you have a contractor and you pay them a lump sum. Uh, That is more common for for contractors. And so that's going to be um, one of the factors that really any government agency is going to clue in on right away. Uh, Another factor that that these agencies will look at is um, the, uh, the, the length of the engagement. If it's indefinite, Again, that's starting to look like at will employment uh, versus okay. This is a six month project. Uh, I'm paying you fifty thousand dollars for these deliverables. You can do the work how you want to do it. You can do the work when you want to do it. All I'm concerned about is getting those deliverables by the the project milestones that we've agreed to.
1: Got it. So if you have a state, so the big thing here is to have a statement of work and say, and if you break out, here are the. Prices for each item in the statement of work, my deliverables. That you're you're pretty good as long as it's not like an indefinite kind of contract.
2: Exactly. One of the other things I'll say too, um, this is an issue I see come up all the time in in agreements with contractors or putative contractors. Uh, they the the company that's hiring the contractor, the so-called contractor, puts in a non-compete agreement, and it's just bananas. I mean, first of all, you know, I, I have issues with non-competes generally speaking, even for employees. Um, But to put it in agreement with a contractor, you're essentially saying you can't work for anybody else but me. I mean, what more control could you try to exert over somebody else uh, in the marketplace? Right. Uh, And and so that's another thing that that people aren't necessarily doing it intentionally. They may have just found a form online or maybe their lawyer sent over a form. Uh, But be really thoughtful about, uh, you know, what these what what you may think are boilerplate terms, the impact that they may have on this this classification issue.
0: And I think, you know, when it comes to like finding talent and finding good contractors, those types of things will be red flags. So, you know, you may have a lawyer who's saying, look, we, you know, let's take a belts and suspenders approach here. Let's throw everything at them and we'll leave it to them to redline. That may push people away. That may may make someone think, I don't know. I don't know about the approach that they're taking here or they just have to spend a lot of time redlining things. Um, realize that the, you are sending signals when you're having legal conversations, and you, you can't just sort of hand wave and say, "Oh, the lawyers, the lawyers," because, like, obviously, you as the principal are having conversations with those lawyers, and you are ultimately responsible for what legal documents are getting sent out with your name on them.
2: <laughs> I think that's a very important point. I think it's it's something that that uh, people who are in in charge of hiring or people who are in charge of running the company, or if or if those those responsibilities overlap. You need to take some ownership over legal too. I think there's a, a temptation that, that relates back to, you know, one of, the, one of the earlier comments that I made about how people view lawyers. There's this temptation to just say, okay, you're kind of this this technician over there and you're just doing something that nobody else understands. Uh, and eventually you're going to spit out something that I then hand to my employee or contractor or whoever. And first of all, it's not the case that nobody else can understand it. Uh, There's plenty of information out there that you can use to self educate, and I would argue you really need to. I mean, if you, if you, you know, A lot of, a lot of business owners uh, realize early on they need to get at least a basic grasp of accounting principles uh, in order to run their business in an effective way. And I would argue that the same thing is true of legal. And so, so Harris, to your point, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think you really have to self-educate. You have to get a sense of you know what's in the contract, why is it there. You don't have to understand the finer points of, of employment law but you should at least be able to digest the information um, and be able to explain it um, at a high level, at the very least, to your employees. I think that's a basic responsibility.
1: Yeah. So I want to get into a question for, or a few questions from my friend Hamilton. Um, he had a specific issue he was working on. so And I wanted to kind of pull out some general questions from that. So I'm going to paraphrase what he was asking. The first up is, if you're working across state boundaries or across countries, you know, let's say you're you're an LLC and you want to contract with a big company in Spain, whatever it might be, how do you decide on a jurisdiction when creating a contract? Is there some procedure, or is it just kind of like I want mine, they want theirs? Well, let's negotiate.
2: Yeah, it's usually going to be um, it's usually going to be you know I want mine, and then whoever has more leverage is usually going to to win out in in the in the relationship. Um, that's usually what I see. Um, so so, yeah, I mean, I would say that you know, in in a given circumstance, there may be a more or less neutral jurisdiction uh, where you might be able to um, you might be able to to have that jurisdiction's law apply and um, perhaps have the the forum if there is a dispute. Um, be resolved in that jurisdiction or you know oftentimes in in these sorts of contracts too you'll see arbitration clauses rather uh, you know than some kind of clause that allows for a lawsuit Um, and there can be more streamlined um, arbitration um, mechanisms and, and jurisdictions that you can go to 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 actually resolve those things.
1: Yeah. And it looks like what happened to him was that he had some, he was working with a company in another country. Um, they agreed on jurisdiction in the United States and the legal representation in his, the people he was working with backed away from that. They were like, well, we don't want to be a part of this since it's not our jurisdiction. And they stepped back from the whole thing. And so now the company he was working with trying to negotiate with, they feel like they're getting screwed because their legal team steps back. Um, so are, how do you go about resolving something like this? Are there international firms? Can you recommend any that somebody might look at? And are you going to pay a lot of money for international representation or legal advice?
2: You will pay a lot of money for for these big international firms, but they, they do serve a purpose, and, and I think that's where you see their purpose really come to the fore. Um, for the average solopreneur, you know, small startup, going to you know Wilson Sonsini, DLA Piper, some of these big international firms, uh, it doesn't make sense because you're going to spend all your money, uh, you know, getting a privacy policy written for you. I have a client who who had a startup, previous startup, and that happened too. I think they spent like $30,000 on a website privacy policy because some associate just kept billing. You know, the meter was running the whole time. Um, it's, it's nuts, but it happens. And, and so for those folks, you know, that, that big international firm is not going to make sense. But if you have a multimillion dollar, uh, you know, contract that you're negotiating, um, that has, you know, international parties, international, um, components to it, it may be worth the money to go and and find one of those firms that says, okay, we have, uh, you know, we have a office located in Hong Kong. We have an office located in Paris. We have an office located in Munich. Uh, and if you have parties who are in those places, it can then be hugely beneficial to be able to tap in, into those resources. So I guess what I would say to to, to your friend um, is that uh, you know try to be try to try to find. You know, a firm in that setting that that you feel like I mean, it's, it's as simple as going to their website in some cases and just seeing where they're, they're based, where they're where they have offices and see if you can find a firm that, that has resources in the place you're going to be. And I mean, realistically, too, if you have a relationship with the firm and it's a real, real relationship, if they can't represent you in some component of the deal uh, or the transaction, they really should be referring you to somebody who can in that space, especially if they're a big firm at that scale. Uh, and so, don't be don't be hesitant to ask for for a referral at that point. And if if they try to you know kind of uh, blow you off, I mean, really be persistent. When you're paying that much money, you you really should uh,
1: you know demand that level of service. Yeah. And so how do you go about interviewing lawyers, whether you're going to hire them to be part of your team or if you're going to contract with them to help you with some stuff, uh, to make sure that they understand or have some familiarity with your specific field? So I know, I believe that most of our listeners will be in, say, the technology, electronics, programming. So how do you make sure a lawyer understands at least a little bit about that world and what that looks like? What are some good questions you might ask them?
2: I think 30 minutes on the phone with a lawyer just talking through through what your business does should give you a decent sense of their level of, of understanding um, of, of what it is that you're doing. Um, I think just being able to... to to, to hear from them, if they're curious about what you're doing, and when, when they ask you questions, first of all, if they ask you questions about, uh, you know, what it is that you're doing with your business, what your goals are, and are then able to speak back to you intelligently, at least, you know, from your perception about what it is that you're doing, and then be able to start issue spotting, that to me is a sure sign that they have a baseline level of competence in whatever industry or, you know, area of, of, you know, technology that you're in, if they can't do those things and just start talking to you about what their hourly rate is, that may be a warning sign. If they don't ask you about what their business, uh, what, or what, what you're trying to do with your business, um, that could be a a sure warning sign for you. What I will say though, is, is, you know, don't lose sight of the importance of, of personality fit in this too, um, there are a lot of lawyers who are not good communicators and who you will not connect with on a personal level. And even if they understand understand your industry, keep in mind some of the things that we've, some of the themes that we've, we've returned to over and over again, just in the last 45 minutes or so, uh, which is that you're hiring somebody to give you not just, uh, you know, documents, not just advice. You're hiring somebody that you call when you, have a question that feels pretty significant to you and may have emotional components. It may have financial, you know, serious financial, um, financial implications for you. And so make sure you're working with somebody who you feel, uh, you trust, who you feel cares about you as a person. Um, those things are, are not, um, are not necessarily sufficient, uh, characteristics of a lawyer. Cause obviously you need competence too. Um, but as long as you feel like there's that baseline
1: competence, start looking for fit at that point too. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, yeah, it's kind of like have. it's kind of like, being with a doctor and having somebody with good bedside manners, right? You want somebody you can talk to and tell your personal issues. Just for, for what it's worth, one of the number one um, things
2: that lawyers get sued for is, um, is more or less insufficient communication, right? You're not giving regular updates. You're not keeping in touch with people. And so I think, to your point, that's exactly right. I mean, it's an apt comparison. Uh, bedside manner matters a lot. It turns out people in stressful situations with complex problems, want to be communicated with clearly. They want to be communicated with regularly. Um, and if your lawyer is not doing those things, uh, you're really not getting the level of service you should. Yeah.
0: One just like tactical question here when you're talking about communication. So like who determines how you communicate with your lawyer? Like, is it uh, email? Is it text messaging? Is it phone calls? Is it video conferences? Is Are there types of conversations that you recommend happen in person because they may be discreet? Like, how do you recommend like literally the method of communication with a lawyer and does does it vary or does it not matter? It does vary and I think it does
2: matter. And what I would encourage people who are, are pursuing relationships with lawyers to do is to voice how you want to be communicated with. And this actually ties back to how do you interview your lawyer? If your lawyer says, I only communicate with people in person and they have an office on the 45th floor Uh, you know, downtown on Main Street in Seattle or Denver or wherever, whatever big city you have, uh, and you're, you know, located 30 minutes outside of town, and the only time you can get there is after work during rush hour. And they say, the only way that we can talk is if you come down to my office and we sit down and talk. That may not be feasible for you. And I think, obviously, you know, in in the moment that we're in, that's not feasible. But, um, you know, my experience has been as, as somebody predominantly meets with people over Uh, you know, video conferences, telephone calls, um, communications through email is that a lot of people don't really want to have to go down and see their lawyer in person. There are exceptions to that, of course. Um, And there are certain practice areas like family law, for instance, where I think that becomes more important. Uh, But if you're a business owner, usually you have a question that pops into your head and you want an answer ASAP. And usually the most efficient way to get that answer is by email or phone call, or video conference. And so if you want to have access to one of those things, really press your lawyer uh, before the engagement on whether those things are available and how flexible your lawyer will be. And if if they're not going to communicate in
1: the way that you want to, I would say just move on from that person. Yeah, makes sense. So I've got one for my friend Pierce here. What are the pros and cons of going about claiming intellectual property Uh, on your own versus using a law law firm? What what steps can you do if you wanted to claim some type of IP?
2: Yeah. So trademark is where I see this come up most frequently. Um, And I think part of the reason for that is it feels the most accessible um, when you first encounter it as a a relative novice. The trademark office has this search database that has a Google-like search feature. And it's it's easy to go to the website to type in, say, your company name, and to have results pop up and think, "Okay, I've done my trademark search. Uh, nobody else is using this." Uh, but it's a total minefield um, to, to to kind of venture into this area, and and structuring effective searches um, is actually much more complicated than than it may appear, you know, at first blush. Um, and and even beyond, you know, structuring an effective search, analyzing the results of your search. Requires actually a fairly sophisticated understanding of trademark law. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, sometimes people will uh, go and use that Google search-like feature, um, and they'll find that there's nobody else that's using their identical mark, and so they just assume that uh, it's available for registration. They go ahead and and you know file their application, and then three months later, they get an objection from the examining attorney. Uh, And it's from a mark that is similar to, but not identical to their logo. And it turns out that the standard that the trademark office uh, looks at when they compare registered marks with, with marks that are, um, that are pending uh, is whether there's a likelihood of confusion to consumers. It's not, are they identical? Are they literally the same thing? Uh, It's, is there a likelihood of confusion? And that's a much more, um, you know, diffuse vague standard and it, it really requires an understanding of, of case law and of, you know, the applicable trademark laws uh, to do a useful analysis of that issue. Uh, a, a second example that I'll, I'll often give people, too, is, uh, you know, sometimes they'll use that same Google search feature, they'll get zero results um, in uh, in their search, and they'll think, okay, it's available. Uh, but they they overlook the fact that some some uh, trademarks or some, some you know brand names, logos, et cetera, uh, aren't even eligible for trademark registration. So for example, if I went and tried to register the law firm, um, it wouldn't be eligible for registration because it's just descriptive of the services that, that I'm providing. It's not a source indicator. Uh, and, and that's a standard that the, the trademark office relies on. And so, again, this, you know, hypothetical applicant files the application. Three months later, they get this office action and then they call me. And what I tell them is, you know, the ounce of prevention principle is in full effect here. Uh, You are going to pay me more to try to fix your problem than you would pay me to try to do it right the first time. Uh, So if you're really serious about trying to protect your IP, you're probably at the point where you should be considering paying a lawyer to at least give you the odds of of likelihood of success. Uh, Even in trademark land, you know, where it seems more accessible, it seems cheaper. Uh, The surest way to spend more money than you should is to try to do it on your own.
0: And we talked about patents before, really deep into trademarks. Now, what about copyright? Copyright seems to me like of all the areas that would be the easiest that a founder or an entrepreneur could decide, make the determinations on their own. And I think that copyright is also probably where people who are doing like designs of a PCB, they're writing content for a blog post. uh, That seems like the area of IP that they'll probably engage with first. And it also seems like the easiest to navigate. Um, Is that true? Yeah, I would
2: say so. I would say it's pretty accessible. The other thing I would say too, though, is... and. This this refers back to, to an earlier topic that we discussed is you know why are you trying to register your copyright um, you know if, if your rights arise through in this case publication um, so and publication is a really broad term uh, it's not quite literally publishing a book it's it's fixing anything in a con- concrete medium so it could be a video it could be audio it could be uh, software code it could be any number of things but as soon as you fix it in some uh, in, in some, you know, in some mode, uh, at that point, you have the rights to it. And you can slap that little C with the circle around it, um, you know, in, in association with it. And that can serve a deterrent effect. So, I mean, I guess I would just ask people, you know, what's the what are the val- what are the benefits of, of going and registering that copyright? Uh, you know, if you have uh, proprietary code, uh, it may be worthwhile. If you have a really interesting design, uh, that you really want to avoid having other people cop copy it, it is probably worth it. And you may be able to do it on your own. I would certainly say it's more accessible, um, than patents and probably trademarks too. Um, but if it's just, you wrote a blog post, uh, your blog post may be wonderful. It may be super helpful, uh, but you probably don't need to go and, and register that that copyright. The other thing just to keep in mind, too, with, with some of these things is don't forget the importance of, of using contracts to, to protect your IP, too. Um, you know, so NDAs, um, you know, if you have service contracts in place where, uh, you know, other people are creating uh, intellectual property for you, make sure that there are those work made for hire clauses, assignment clauses. So you're, you know, collecting all that IP. Don't overlook those things, too. Because um, one of the surest ways for people to to rip off your stuff is uh, is you know people that you're actually interacting with. It's not these people that kind of out in the ether who are who are stealing your things, unless you're you know creating major motion pictures or or publishing novels or something like that. But if it's just smaller stuff, uh, you know, don't forget about contracts.
0: Last thing that hasn't come up yet, but could you touch on uh, trade secrets real quick? Because that would be something that someone who's like working for you or with you might also have access to. Can you just Do like a quick primer on what what are trade secrets? How do they work? Um, Is that something that people should be thinking about? I know the famous example is like the Coca-Cola recipe.
2: Yeah, trade secrets are, are, um, they definitely come up. Um, They're not very well defined. Um, It's kind of like the, you know, the obscenity thing, you know, Uh, you know, you know it when you see it. Uh, there are statutes. I think in all fifty states now, there's a there's a federal um, or there's a uniform statute for Uniform Trade Secrets Act uh, that's at the federal level that that then states have modeled their their statutes on. Um, and and trade secrets is kind of like a um, an umbrella term um, for things that don't necessarily neatly fall into patent, copyright. Um, Or or trademark land in IP, but are still you know confidential proprietary, say like customer lists, things like that. Um, And and with those, you want to make sure that you have confidentiality provisions in all your employment agreements, in all your contractor agreements, in any kind of service agreements with service providers. Um, Really, the key for trade secrets in in many instances is being able to show that you have gone to uh, you've taken taken steps to, to keep these things secret. Um, it's in the name. Uh, you know, it's they're not hiding the ball here. You really need to protect these things. Um, and that's one of the ways that you show that it is actually a trade secret that's subject to a certain level of protection. Um, and, and so that's usually what I tell people is, is you've got to show that you're, you're trying to protect this stuff. Uh, but there isn't some kind of registry in the way that there is for say like you know a trademark um, with trade secrets
1: it's more about you know how you how you safeguard these things on your own yeah that's super enlightening I didn't realize that you know trades trade secrets are something that's I, I guess not super well defined but can offer you some protection so that's good to know thank you so I think that's everything we've got time for mark thank you so much for being on the show I learned a ton today about protecting yourself by on a both corporate contractor um and your own intellectual property level so thank you so much
2: great to be here guys thanks a lot
0: so mark where can uh, where can we find you online so people love this they're all in. they want to spend more time thinking about legal advice and lawyers. Where can they find you?
2: Yeah, so my website's uh, marktysonlaw.com. There's a lot of um, you know blog content out there that some of which is applicable for you know people regardless of what state you're in, um, you know especially intellectual property stuff because uh, that's not controlled at the state level um, or at least you know aspects of it are not. Um, so if you want to go and check out blogs, you can find stuff there. Um, you can find me online at Twitter. Um, I think I'm at Mark W. Tyson, not the most creative, but, you know, certainly descriptive. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn too, but really the blog I think is probably going to be the most useful resource. I mean, unless you really want my spicy hot takes on Twitter, the blog is where you're going to find, you know, substantive content. Uh, you know, that, that may relate to, to the legal issues or concerns you have. Also, just for what it's worth, I'm always happy to talk to anyone, uh, even if it's not, you know, likely that we're going to work together. Um, I'm, I'm super open to, to helping out entrepreneurs and just people who have questions. So, so feel welcome to contact me.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and share the show. Let us know what you think on Twitter at HelloBlinkShow. Find show notes at HelloBlinkShow.com. The Hello Blink show is shared under a CC by 4.0 license by Skalriza, LLC and Kenny Consulting Group, LLC. The intro and outro music is Routine by Amin Maxwell and is shared under a CC by 3.0 license. This song can be found at soundcloud.com slash aminemaxwell slash routine. And
1: I just checked the URL spicy hot takes with Mark Tyson is not taken yet. So I'm going to register that right now. Oh, man. (laughs) I think that's a clear example of cyber cyber squatting. (laughs) I'll gift it to you. It'll be fine.